Sepsis is a disease that can come on suddenly and have a devastating impact. The global death rate is high and there's a need for rapid detection and treatment. But it's also a disease that is difficult to identify. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today I'm chatting with two authors of a CMAJ commentary. Dr. Shannon Fernando and Dr. Barm Roshwig are drawing attention to the recently updated consensus definition of sepsis and septic shock and the clinical implications that this definition carries. Dr. Shannon Fernando is a fifth-year resident in emergency and critical care medicine at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Bram Rostreg is an internal medicine and clinical care specialist and assistant professor at McMaster University School of Medicine in Hamilton, Ontario. They wrote the commentary with Dr. Andrew Seeley. Welcome, Shannon and Bram. Hi, thank you so much for having us. Shannon, what's the burden of sepsis worldwide? So that's a, a very important question that's not uh, easily answered. There was actually a very great article that came out in the, the CMAJ uh, earlier this year, by or in early 2017, by Degar Dugani and, and colleagues, where they referred to the difficulty in, in identifying true epidemiology of sepsis. The overall mortality of sepsis worldwide is estimated roughly about 25 to 30% globally. There's about 30 million cases of sepsis every year, uh, and resulting in more than 8 million deaths uh, in, pa- uh, in patients with sepsis. Now, the mortality increases substantially in patients with complications and patients in lower-income countries, but what's important to recognize is that the true incidence of this disease, the true mortality of disease, is not clear given the, the varying definitions, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about, I think, today, uh, about the importance of, of uh, defining sepsis appropriately so that we can uh, really more clearly identify its global impact. So why is it so important to properly define sepsis? Well, I think what's interesting about sepsis as a disease is it's largely a, a, a syndrome, really. I, I mean, if you take a patient, a 75-year-old patient, a uh, gentleman admitted into the ICU uh, with that we're rounding on who's got pneumonia, admitted with a cough and a fever, uh, respiratory failure, requiring intubation, he's in profound shock on multiple vasoactive medications, he's got an acute kidney injury requiring renal replacement therapy. I think most of us as clinicians would walk by that patient and say, well, that patient has sepsis, or more specifically, septic shock. And we would probably all agree on that fact, but the truth is there's no real way to know for sure. There is no blood test. There is no imaging test. There is not even any pathological or post-death test that can give us a true diagnosis of sepsis. It's largely a syndrome. And so defining sepsis clearly is important because we want to make sure that we're talking about the same things uh, overall. We want to make sure that when we're uh, dis- when we're uh, applying the research that is in- involved in this area, that we are talking about the same thing. And then uh, secondly, additionally to what I was mentioning earlier, we want to be sure that from an epidemiological perspective, we truly understand the uh, impact of this disease, not just in North America, but globally, where it remains a, a major cause of mortality. So just to recap, you're talking about the need to for researchers all over the world to be talking about the same thing when they're researching sepsis or uh, discussing sepsis and looking at outcomes that are consistent across the board. Correct. There is no, at present, gold standard for the diagnosis, and that's why you have traditionally utilized clinical criteria. Uh, for the diagnosis of sepsis. But there is, it's important for everyone to recognize this is a true syndrome in the medical sense. There is no gold standard for diagnosis. So the consensus definitions for sepsis and septic shock were updated not very long ago. How did the definitions change from what they were before? 
So this is really important, and it was really the, the entire impetus of uh, the third international consensus definitions for septic, uh, sepsis and septic shock, which we refer to colloquially as, as sepsis-3. Uh, largely, prior to sepsis-3, on the basis of the definitions of sepsis from the early 90s, we had defined sepsis on the basis of the systemic inflammatory response syndrome criteria, the SIRS criteria. That's how I learned about sepsis in medical school. I think that's how many people continue to learn about sepsis. Um, and the first criteria consists of four criteria, which we won't go into in detail, but they are effectively temperature, uh, elevated heart rate, uh, respiratory rate, uh, and white blood cell count. And we had traditionally identified a patient with sepsis as a patient with infection or and two or more of the SIRS criteria, uh, these inflammatory criteria. And I can tell you anecdotally at the Ottawa Hospital, uh, the University of Ottawa where, where I work, uh, our protocols for rapid treatment of sepsis are introduced on the basis of these uh, SIRS criteria. So a patient who shows up at triage in the emergency department who has an infection and has two or more of these criteria will get put on our quote-unquote sepsis pathway. And so that patient, it's prioritized that that patient will get early blood cultures, early antibiotics, early volume uh, fluids for for treatment uh, of sepsis. What was discovered over time is that sepsis is not purely defined on the basis of inflammation. In fact, there's a lot of anti-inflammatory pathways and, and uh, alternative uh, biochemical microbe uh, or uh, molecular pathways that are implicated in disease. And as a result, the third international consensus definitions, or sepsis-3, said we want to move away from defining sepsis purely by, by inflammation because, as we all know clinically, there are a ton of patients who manifest a systemic inflammatory response, patients with pancreatitis, patients with trauma, uh, patients with various poisonings. Uh, and, you know, in fact, every post-operative patient to some degree has SIRS criteria. So they said these criteria are very nonspecific. And so we need to move to a set of criteria that are more obvious uh, and, and are more uh, distinct and objective and more clearly defined than sepsis. And what they said, what this group of uh, investigators said is, well, there's two things that we really know about sepsis for sure. The first is that it's, it ha- starts with infection. And the second is that it results in organ failure. Uh, and we can say those two things for certain. And so they moved to a definition of, uh, of uh, sepsis as life-threatening organ dysfunction that's caused by a dysregulated host response to infection. Uh, and what that means is not clear. What's a disregulated host response to infection? What do you constitute as life-threatening? And so as part of sepsis 3, they did create clinical criteria that they wanted clinicians to use for the purposes of calling a patient sepsis. And this is related to the importance of defining sepsis that we discussed. And instead, what they said is, we're not going to use the SIRS criteria anymore. Instead, a patient is a, uh, with a sepsis will be a patient with infection and an increase in the, in the SOFA score, or the sequential organ failure assessment score of two or more. I won't go through the SOFA score in detail. It's a very difficult score to memorize as a variety of organ systems that are involved. But that's how they chose to define sepsis on really the two things that we know for certain about it. It starts with an infection and it, it, it results in organ dysfunction. They then defined a patient with septic shock as a patient with uh, pre- uh, presence of uh, sepsis as defined by the SOFA score, as well as refractory hypotension. And they defined that as a, a systolic blood pressure or a mass, a mean, a mean pressure less than or equal to 65. Uh, requiring vasopressors, and a lactate greater than 2, which is different than the definition we had previously used, which is just a patient with SIRS criteria and evidence of uh, hypotension. So they rather decided to define septic shock on the initiation of vasopressors and the idea of high lactate. So those two components, the increase in the SOFA score 
is the definition of sepsis and the, inc and the increase in the SOFA score with the requirement of vasopressors and an elevated lactate is the definition of septic shock. Where people get confused and what has been a major source of confusion is the new quick sequential organ failure assessment or the Q-SOFA criteria. So we, that is an important thing that uh, I think we should probably discuss uh, in terms of uh, concerns about how the tool is used. Yeah, so the Q-SOFA is, is much discussed and, um, and perhaps do you want to go into that? Right. So the Q-SOFA criteria uh, are the presence of two or more of the following. Hypotension, which they defined as a systolic blood pressure less than 100. Uh, altered respiratory rate or increased respiratory rate, which they defined as a respiratory rate greater than 22. And altered mental status, which they described as a, a glass trachoma scale less than or equal to, four, uh, to 14, so less than 15. And if you have two or more of these criteria, you're said to be Q-SOFA positive and at high risk for death. So the concern with the, the way that this is utilized is the way I have seen it conflated in the literature and, and in practice is that people are seeing the search criteria go away, which was our tool for screening patients arriving at triage in the emergency department or patients on the ward with our way of screening and initiating treatment, and they're suddenly introducing the QSOFA criteria. It's extremely important to recognize that the QSOFA criteria were never introduced or never created for the purposes of screening. Uh, myself and Dr. Rossberg and several of other colleagues published a paper in February of this year in the Annals of Internal Medicine where we investigated the true sensitivity and specificity of QSOFA in the systematic view of meta-analysis as compared to the SOFA, or as compared to the SERS criteria. What we found is that the sensitivity of QSOFA is for, for prediction of mortality is markedly reduced at 60.8% compared to the SERS criteria at 88.1%. The specificity was higher at 72% compared to the SERS criteria at 25%. But what's important to understand is, as a screening tool, QSOFA is going to miss roughly four out of every ten patients or what, uh, that present with infection. And as a result, if you use, if you rely on the QSOFA criteria for the initiation of treatment, you're going to mismanage and uh, several patients presenting with infection. And this point has been reiterated over and over again by the Sepsis Three Task Force that we should not be using these clinical criteria, whether it's the new definition for sepsis, the new definition for septic shock or the QSOFA criteria for the initiation of treatment. That should be completely separate from what we have been, from what these definitions are. These definitions serve two purposes. The first is to define disease, as we described before, and the second is to prognosticate. So what they said is patients who meet septic shock criteria have an overall mortality of 40%. So that's something you can use as a clinician in understanding the severity of this patient's illness. However, you should not wait until the patient develops septic shock-like criteria to initiate aggressive management for septic shock. And I think that's where the major conflation of these definitions has occurred, is that people are confused with how they should utilize it. They've seen SIRS go away, and they've seen these new criteria come in, but the truth is these new criteria do not replace the SIRS criteria. And I think that's a major point and major focus of our article. This was never something that was mentioned by the sepsis three group. They never said to do this, but it's just, I think, the way it's been interpreted by clinicians who are interpreting the literature. I understand how that happens. I, I used to work in an ICU setting um, once before, and when we would get call out onto the, the general ward sometimes, you'd see patients that were really, really sick, and you'd sort of wonder why hadn't more aggressive management been started in those patients before. And I think it is just the way that we, as physicians, interpret uh, uh, rules, I suppose, is what we would call them. We interpret rules as being a yes, no, we should start treatment, we shouldn't start treatment, whereas... 
I think when you are around sick patients a lot, you develop a sort of a heuristic, um, which allows you to tell that this is a patient who's about to go over the edge. Exactly. And I think we've rely, learned to rely really heavily on clinical criteria. And the sepsis-3 task force did not really discuss screening for sepsis. And I think that that's extremely, extremely important to realize. You should not be using these criteria for those purposes. And they have written multiple articles uh, to this effect. But it, it, the more we can get that message out, uh, the more we can we can educate uh, clinicians. Because the sepsis-3 clinical criteria have really great value in prognostication. Their accuracy has been uh, largely demonstrated in multiple studies. Uh, they use themselves very large databases to derive these tools, but I think the confusion has arisen from how they should be implemented in clinical practice, and that's something we've tried to emphasize in this article. You know, for we contextualize for our own practice, and I think in high-income countries, this decision between black and white sepsis versus no sepsis might not have as strong implications, because if somebody is perceived to be ill, we should treat them in an escalating matter, no matter whether they meet the definition or not. But I think that those those definitions are more important, perhaps in two specific populations, and one in um, perhaps less experienced clinicians with critically ill patients, where where they do more have to rely on the, the diagnostic criteria that are there or the tools that are there. Maybe they don't have as well developed a, a personal indicators of, of who's critically ill and who requires an escalation and management. Um, and the, the other growing significant uh, population where I think the consideration needs to be made is in low uh, and middle income countries. And, you know, the implications, there has to be a, um, a careful use of resources in this setting. And diagnosing somebody with, with sepsis has implications in terms of using some of those scarce resources and uh, perhaps using a tool that's um, less sensitive and more uh, sick population being diagnosed with, with the alternative, which would be uncomplicated infection. This is going to have implications in terms of um, whether they get IVs started, whether they use their couple bags of IV resuscitation fluid that are at the back, whether they're put in a monitored setting when th these resources are not widespread and available. So I, I think it's important to keep in mind those situations as well when we look at the implications of using uh, different tools for the diagnosis. That's really helpful to think about it in that way and that different populations, different prevalences of sepsis are going to, to make a difference to what, what tools you're using or how you're interpreting your tools. So Shannon, I just wanted to go back to um, what we were talking about before. What's great in this podcast and also in the article is that you underscore what the definition, the sepsis redefinition is for, is for prognosticating. Can you tell us why it's important to be able to prognosticate? I think there are, there are a couple of reasons. Um, first and foremost, you want to be able to, to understand what kind of therapy you're going to need uh, in terms of how aggressively you're going to manage a patient. The benefit of the QSOFR criteria, the way it was designed, was supposed to be as an early warning tool, uh, a tool that would indicate to you as a clinician at the bedside that the patient you were, you were taking care of was at high risk of mortality. And you could do this immediately at the bedside in 30 to 45 seconds without relying on any blood work uh, or anything else. And so I think knowing how to prognosticate and understanding and identifying a patient who's at high risk is extremely, extremely important. Even if this comes at the cost of sensitivity and you're, uh, you're aware and understanding that, you know what, not every patient who's going to die from sepsis is going to develop this degree of severe illness in front of me. But knowing that it's there will allow you to escalate your therapy appropriately. 
The second thing, and I think uh, Dr. Rosh would agree, a major aspect of, of treatment in, in the in the intensive care unit, particularly, is understanding uh, goals of care and patients' uh, wishes with regards to treatment. It's really important uh, and has great value. Uh, when you can speak to a family and, and provide them with information related to the severity of the patient's illness. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not uncommon for patients or patients' families to ask, what's the likelihood uh, that my, myself or my loved one is going to pass away from this illness? Uh, and if you can give them uh, an indication of the likelihood of mortality or the likelihood of, even more important than that, is loss of independence, uh, likelihood of returning to their level of independence beforehand, it really helps patients to make really informed decisions on the basis of their care, which is largely what guides what we do uh, in the intensive care unit. We want to uh, provide the best level of care, the highest level of care within uh, what the patient uh, feels is appropriate in terms of their goals of care. And so sometimes patients, if you tell them the likelihood of you surviving this illness or you're telling your family the likelihood of you surviving this illness or the family member surviving this illness is, is very low uh, it, or returning to the level of independence that they had before is very low. Again, it allows them to make decisions uh, related to, um, you know, how much further they want to go with aggressive management, how much they want to focus on comfort uh, and, and things like that. And so it, prognostic scales in the intensive care unit are extremely important because they provide us with some level of evidence, some level of numbers uh, that we can utilize at the bedside and A, escalating care, but B, and arguably more importantly, is informing patients and, and uh, providing uh, care within the uh, within the limitations that they have uh, set out for us. So, Brian, what needs to change in order to get a handle on sepsis, in your opinion? Well, that's uh, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think despite the uh, the things that, that do need to change, I think we've made a lot of headway in terms of how we, we do manage sepsis, even when you look over the last... 50, 60, 70 years. I mean, I, I'm a bit of a history of medicine nerd myself, and you think back to even World War II era or immediately before, and, you know, we did not have widespread availability of antibiotics at that time, and a diagnosis of, of sepsis was a terminal diagnosis. You were sort of put on a, a palliative care ward to, to hopefully pass away uh, peacefully, and you think about the transition uh, over the last 70 to 80 years, and We've seen substantial drops in, in sepsis mortality uh, in the intervening time, and even more specifically in the last um, uh, 20 years with, with uh, increases and advancements in earlier recognition and, and adequate fluid replacement and earlier interventions in terms of antibiotics. And if, to be honest, is, is that I, I think it's this bread and butter that, that's really the, the key in terms of reducing sepsis mortality even more than we've done. I was uh, part of the Surviving Sepsis Guidelines. We're just starting on our uh, fourth iteration soon. And this idea of protocolizing care or um, standardizing care across countries, geographical regions, I think it's, it's really important in terms of ensuring that those with sepsis receive uh, optimal care. And as I was alluding to is that I think it's, it's more of improving this this routine use of, of these known interventions that we know can, can decrease mortality and when we talk about the mainstays of treatment in sepsis, we're really talking about uh, early recognition, which Shannon has done a great job of alluding to the, the implications of the new uh, diagnostic criteria. But I still think that there's there's room for for enhancing our early recognition even more so. And and practically speaking, this might look at things like triaging uh, and and diagnosing upon presentation in the emergency department. Or there's even groups that have looked at diagnosing uh, sepsis and starting sepsis-specific interventions even in the pre-hospital setting uh, via our, our paramedic colleagues, um, as well as 
you know, the same would, would hold true for patients on the ward that are potentially decompensating. And you've seen more widespread use of things like medical outreach teams or, or race teams where uh, a, a team from the ICU goes up to the ward uh, to recognize these patients that are decompensating perhaps from sepsis and starting interventions earlier. This, this whole inflammatory cascade and it's driven by bacterial or viral or parasitic pathogens, often once it's sort of initiated and started, it's very difficult to reverse. And uh, that's why the focus is so much on recognizing these people earlier on before this these inflammatory cytokines and, and the body's own immune system overcompensates and overreacts and, and starts one down this critical pathway. Uh, so I, I think that what needs to change in order to get a handle, I think earlier recognition is, is important, uh, facilitated by those things that I've mentioned. I think that earlier recognition will then allow for, for earlier interventions. And we know that there's that sort of critical few, first few hours in sepsis in terms of starting um, intravenous fluids and, and antibiotics and, and also moving patients to a more monitored setting where, where we can follow them and, and see how these interventions affect their vital signs and um, their clinical status. But as you can imagine, all these sort of things that there's obviously resource and, and time implications associated with, and we've talked more in sort of our, our high-income context, but definitely for, for countries uh, without the resources that we do, the implications might be even higher. Um, at my own center, um, we've sort of seen with this aging population, especially as the baby boom has grown, as more complexity and disease, uh, more folks uh, or patients presenting with uh, sepsis and, and critical illness. I work at a cancer center in Hamilton, and we've seen more and more people with comorbidities and, and the elderly receiving high-intensity chemotherapy. We've expanded our stem cell transplant program, which um, the effects on one's own immune system are substantial. And uh, these people are, uh, are patients, again, all sort of set up for, for episodes of, of sepsis. And I think despite the fact that we're seeing lower mortality over the last 10, 20, 15 um, years is that we're, uh, we're seeing increasing prevalence uh, of sepsis. And I think it's a lot because of uh, what we're doing uh, to patients. So uh, despite the fact that I think that it, it, these are easy things to, to roll out in terms of recognition intervention, there's the, the challenges all come down to to cost resources and, and finding out how to best do that within the healthcare system that we work. Um, there's been lots of work looking at enhancing therapy and, and what the future of sepsis might look like. And I can tell you some of the exciting things might uh, include, you know, Dr. Fernando alluded to the fact that there is no uh, specific test for sepsis, a blood test for sepsis. There are people that are working in laboratories at, at diagnosing sepsis based on uh, chip analysis and taking even a small sample of blood and being able to, to decide if somebody's septic within minutes uh, of sampling. Uh, and I think one of the other exciting uh, interventions coming down the pipeline is looking at targeted immune therapy. Um, and we know that as part of the new definitions that the body's immune response to a pathogen is so important. And it's likely that some of that immune response is appropriate, but some of one's immune response is, is hyperactive, is overactivated immune response, which actually contributes to organ dysfunction and maybe finding specific pathways to help regulate the immune system um, with uh, with biologic agents and um, uh, cytokine blockers might uh, be beneficial. So uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think it, there's, there's excitement and, and interventions that are coming that might further improve our care of these patients. 
And what's your main takeaway message for physicians who are having to manage and identify sepsis in practice? Well, I think that knowing the implications of early management, I think it's inherent on us all to keep sepsis in mind as a potential diagnosis when you're seeing any critically ill patients uh, or any patient in general that's that's unwell in, in an emergency room setting or the ward setting. And always erring on the side of, of treatment, at least up front, is usually um, safest. And you can always give a dose of antibiotics and a little bit of fluids early on. If it turns out this patient doesn't appear to have sepsis, um, or further information comes to light, you can always stop the antibiotics after after a few doses. So I, I, I think that the main takeaway uh, for people is to have a high clinical suspicion, uh, to use the, the tools, and uh, definitely agree that when you're trying to make sure that you don't miss a diagnosis of sepsis, more sensitive tools uh, like the SERS-based criteria are, are more beneficial, and uh, erring on the side of treatment. And ensuring that you always sort of follow up with these patients and making sure that they end up in a more monitored setting where you can you can follow your resuscitative efforts and ensure that they're they're heading uh, in the right direction or you have opportunity to escalate your care if they're continuing to deteriorate. Well, thanks for joining me today to talk about this, this great article, which I think is hugely helpful. I learned a lot from reading it. Thank you so much for having us, Dr. Patrick. I've been speaking with Dr. Shannon Fernando, a fifth-year resident in emergency and critical care medicine at the University of Ottawa, and Dr. Bram Roshwin, an internal medicine and critical care specialist and assistant professor at McMaster University School of Medicine in Hamilton, Ontario. The commentary they co-authored is published in CMAJ. To read the article, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes, and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening.